love that will not let us go. Hold on to us, Lord Jesus. And give us eyes to see what you know to be true, that your love is unending and never changing, and it is for us. And show us, Lord, how that makes us feel with the passing of each day. Open us to your word this day, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the thing I've learned already this morning <clears throat> is that I dare not give Tom Johnson any kind of jokes or he'll bring them up here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I couldn't think if I tried to today. Uh, I'm thinking today about uh, what it is to be the bride of Christ. And so I thought I'd start with a question. I mean, what, is it, what, what, what does it mean to feel, right? How do we feel as followers of the Lord Jesus? We know a little bit about what it is to do, followers of Lord Jesus, right? Where we, we can do like uh, uh, priests who are sacrificing in worship. We can do like uh, sheep under a shepherd. We can read our Bibles. We can pray. We can do all these different things. But how do we feel in the midst of this as we wait day after day for our Lord's return? And, and why are those feelings present in us? Today, I want to look at what I think is one of the most profoundly beautiful uh, descriptions of Christ in the church and that is the description of the church as his bride. And as I begin, uh, Travis mentioned this earlier, envisioning oneself as a bride is not something that a lot of guys have practiced with. <laughs> like other men, I grew up and I didn't even think about ever becoming a bride, right? And I, I didn't think and work too much in my own wedding day. I, Anne was doing all that stuff, right? So quite honestly, I, I'm wired like an engineer. That's what my dad was an engineer and I'm wired like him. And, and when my future father-in-law came forward, who was an engineer, by the way, he came forward and he asked me, he said, Rob, if you will elope with my daughter, I'll give you $5,000 and a ladder. <laughs> you know? I thought that was a great idea. <clears throat> it was the bride that stepped in to shut down those negotiations. You know, I thought, gee. Now, my guess is, is that I'm not alone in the room today. Since it's not part of our expectation, it's not part of our experience, Guys kind of get a sense that says, ah, oh, the church is the bride of Christ. Eh, I, 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 somebody else will pick that up. But guys, we're not the only ones to struggle with it. Quite honestly, everyone in this congregation has to wrestle with this reality, this snapshot a little bit, because none of us lived in first century Palestine. Our understanding of the source of marriage and the flow of marriage customs is different than their understanding. So what I want to do for the bulk of our time today is bridge the cultural gap between us and them. Because I think that once we see a little bit more about understanding they, how they understood the source of marriage and how they practiced wedding customs, I think it's going to shed some light for us on a couple of things that we've taken for granted over the years. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to walk through the source and some of the processes from Genesis chapter 2 through Revelation 21, and we're going to do that in the next 25 minutes. Here we go. <laughs> so the first hint of God's connection to marriage is found in the book of Genesis uh, at the Garden of Eden. Because when God presented Eve to Adam, God was initiating the marriage covenant. And he said that the two, the man and the woman, would become one. But it wasn't just the two, the man and the woman, becoming one. There was also a oneness that the couple would have with their creator. So the original three-way union that God intended, of course, was broken when Adam and Eve denied God's love for them and pursued their own way. 
God responded by kicking them out of the garden, bringing a curse upon all creation, and by initiating a new plan to create a group of people that would be his own. They would all flow from Abraham, and they would be called Israel. God led his people, Israel, to a place called Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. Now, this is interesting because God could have chosen a number of different covenants he could have cut with his people, but he chose a blood covenant. In other words, God Almighty bound himself to these human beings by blood. We say it another way, they became family. And following that, that covenant, they had a big feast together. As Moses and the elders all, asc all ascended the, the mountain, and they ate in God's presence, kind of like a huge wedding reception. That's what was on God's mind. But throughout the scriptures, his prophets, uh, God was calling Israel his bride, and he expressed his undying love and commitment to her. And so when we come to Mount Sinai, we look behind the mountain, behind the smoke, behind the fire, behind the stone tablets, we find the mystery of marriage. And it's no coincidence that from here on out, the nation's sin of idolatry is likened to adultery. As the bride begins to, to look, for other, look, uh, look to other people to provide what the bridegroom had promised, and as the bride was taking the gifts the bridegroom had already given and was using them in totally inappropriate ways. This is what God said through his prophet Ezekiel. He said, but you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. You used the lovely things I gave you to make shrines for idols. You played the prostitute. Unbelievable! How could such a thing ever happen? You took the very jewels and gold and silver ornaments I had given you and made statues of men and worshipped them. This is adultery against me, says the Lord. Now, rather than, than push them aside and start over again, though, in his unfailing love, in his grace, God was going to restore the relationship. And he promised a new covenant, a new marriage covenant. And he said it through his prophet Jeremiah. He said, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt and then went to Mount Sinai. That's what the, that's a reference to. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. In the most gracious way. God promised to forgive their sins, to restore the relationship, and enter into that union again through a new covenant. Now, I want us to recognize what the end result of this covenant is, okay? It's down in verse 34. I put it on the screen behind you. The end result is that everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me. God wants to be known by us. The whole Garden of Eden thing, to walk with God in the cool of the day. So this is not just a, an intellectual knowledge about God. This is a relational knowledge of God. 
the kind of knowledge that a wife would have of her husband. I think God wants us to know him in such a way so that there are no secrets between us. There's no reason for us to hide like Adam did in the garden. If I could use um, biblical language, I'd say that God wants to know us in a way where we are naked and unashamed. We don't have to hide from him because he accepts us and embraces us and loves us. So marriage is a picture of a spiritual intimacy God will bring between himself and his people. And it begins with the image of a bride waiting for her groom. We, we see that in the Old Testament. And that, that, that teaching in the Old Testament impacted Jesus' day. So when Jesus was, on the, was walking around, some interesting things happened. The people there were waiting for a day when God, as the bridegroom, would come to forgive their sins and to reestablish this covenant of marriage with them where they would be in union with God. So just imagine what kind of buzz was taking place, you know? When the guy known as a prophet, John the Baptist, referred to Jesus as the bridegroom. Imagine what people were thinking when, when Jesus told the people that, that his disciples were not fasting because the bridegroom was with them. They're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus, you're not getting married? Are you talking about yourself? What do you mean by bridegroom? Some interesting things going on. You see, the image of a bride and a groom is the image that's woven tightly into Israel's history, into its theology. It's pounded into their identity, and it hooks them. It connects them in a familial way with God himself. So when we talk about their understanding of the source of marriage, all of that is tied in from Genesis 2 to Mount Sinai all the way up and this covenant that God promised them. Let's now turn and talk about the wedding customs, the, the process that they went through to express this. Their wedding process is different than ours. It began with a betrothal. Basically, the father of the groom would, would go to, uh, would select the bride for his son and then go to that bride's father and negotiate a bride price, the price that would be required to take the woman from her one family and bring her now into the new family. Once that price had been negotiated, then the, the son and the father and their family would all come over to the bride's house and they would have a big festival, a big feast. And somewhere in that feast, the groom would go to the potential bride and he would express his commitment to her. He'd say, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm willing to give. I love you. I'm committing myself to you. Will you enter into that covenant with me? Once she consumed the cup, because what he would do is hand the cup to the, to the bride, and she would take the cup and she would consume it. And if she consumed it, she said, yes, I'm going to enter into this covenant with you. And once she consumed the cup, the payment would be made, and then the betrothal would begin. And at that very moment is when they were considered to be married from that point on. Her acceptance of his covenant of faithfulness put something into motion that could not be stopped. The groom would now leave the bride's home and return to his father where he would prepare a place for her. What that was was often the father had a house and they would just keep building rooms onto the house and eventually they'd make a big square or a rectangle around a common courtyard where the extended family would join together in sharing life. So with the betrothal set and the groom on a construction project, the couple now entered into what was called the interval period, a time when both bride and groom awaited the completion of this interval. No one knew the day or the hour of the son's return. Not even the son. The son did not know. The only one to know would be the father of the son. He's the one that set the day and the hour of the son's return. During this interval period, the bride prepared herself for that arrival. Her life was different now. She was now betrothed. 
Her identity had changed, her future was different, and those two changes made a difference in how she lived her life day by day. All old affections were forgotten. New affections would have to be denied. She had been bought with a price, and so she wanted to, to begin to live her life in such a way so that she could respect and honor the one who gave so much for her to learn more about him and to learn how she can be faithful to him. And everything about this for her, this is amazing. I mean, you think about this. She is hanging out there on a promise made by some guy. She's trusting in his faithfulness. I want to stop here for a second because there's a, there's a little shift that we need to think our way through a little bit. Because in our culture, what we feel as normal is that we always marry out of love, right? And the story goes like this. A boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They like each other. They spend time together. They like each other all the more. And eventually, they, they cannot envision a future without one another, and they get married. So for us, love begins as a feeling and moves into a choice that is expressed through our commitment to each other, no matter what happens. Till death do us part, we're in this thing full because I love you so much. The biblical example 2,000 years ago was different. It was an arranged marriage, and while the deviations from the norm, it went basically like this. The father of the son selects the bride. They have a negotiation about it. And then when that first, uh, that first meal, that first feast comes in, that's when boy meets girl. They might have known each other, perhaps, earlier on. Um, they might have grown up together, different villages, whatever the case. But that's when they meet each other to say, wow, this is going to get serious fast. And the boy then expresses his commitment to her. This is how I love you because I'm going to pay this. I'm going to do this. Here are the promises I give. Here's the commitments I make. And so for them, love begins as a tangible commitment and then grows into a feeling over time. This is so far removed from our experience, it's hard for us to understand that. And, and we, I want to go back and say that we are talking about Christ and the church here, okay? There are still arranged marriages, and many in our congregation come from countries that have that. And sometimes those arranged marriages don't turn into a feeling of love one for another. They're just commitment all the time. But we're talking about Christ and the church. So, so let me give you an illustration of how it worked out in my own life. Because I did not choose Jesus. I was just bopping along my day, doing my own thing, when the Father chose me to become the Son's bride. And I was honestly blown away by what He was willing to pay for me. I, when I heard about His love, when I heard about the price He was paying, when I heard about all the commitments He would make to me and the gifts He was giving for this very moment, I was stunned. I remember, I remember when, when He approached me on August 7, 1979, it was one of those life-changing moments, and, and I learned what he was going to do. I, I said to him, look, I, I don't understand what this means. I'm blown away by this. But because of what you are giving, because of what you are offering, I'd be a fool to pass this up. Yes, I will enter into this covenant with you. And at that moment, I became betrothed to Jesus. My life immediately changed. My identity was now different. Uh, my future was now different, and that impacted how I was going to live day by day. And so day by day, I was learning more about this one that gave his life for me, and I was learning more about myself and what it means to be faithful to him. As I grew in my knowledge about Jesus, I also began to grow in my knowledge of Jesus, because one of the gifts the groom has given to all is this amazing thing called his Holy Spirit. A spirit that guarantees that everything else that he promised is going to take place. We, we're not hanging out there. We've got to guarantee a down payment. And a spirit that allows us to get to know him better. I get to know Jesus through you and the Holy Spirit in you. You get to know him through me. 
We get to feel his presence with us, even though he is not physically present now. So what started as my being in relationship really with a loving superior officer, because that's what I saw him, he was going to tell me what to do, he's going to help me pass through my days, do it right, do it well, that type of thing. That began to change to become a relationship with a dear friend who would walk with me and chat with me. We'd have fun together, but we would also have some serious conversations together. Most of the time, I was um, just going about my duties. It wasn't a special day. But every now and then, literally maybe two, maybe three times in the last 40 years, something profound would happen. One of the first times it happened was in the early mid-90s. I was driving back from vacation with my family from Florida. Ann's parents lived in Orlando, a great little place to visit. Uh, we're driving back on I-75. It was early morning. My family's all asleep in the car, and I'm driving along, and I'm just thanking the Lord for his blessings in my life. Thanking him for Ann, thanking him for the kids, thanking, just all kinds of things. And then all of a sudden it happened. The groom entered the vehicle. I was overwhelmed. You know, love like a hurricane. You, you can't stand against the wind. It's not devastating. It is something that is really just powerful and it overwhelms you. And I began to weep and I cried. And I remember saying to him, Lord Jesus, if you never answer another one of my prayers, that's okay because you've already given me enough. It seems to me that this kind of visitation doesn't happen often. And some people say they never have one like that, and that's okay. But what does happen almost every day to every one of us is that Jesus sends us little postcards, or I'll update the analogy, he sends us text messages with cute little emojis on them. You know, little smiley faces winking, uh, hearts in the eyes, you know, a bouquet of flowers. He sends these to us as a way to remind us of his love and his commitment to us. The question is not do we receive them. The question is, do we recognize them when they come? Years ago in his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer challenged me with a thought. He said that in the same way that God gave us physical senses to apprehend the physical universe, so too he gave us spiritual senses to apprehend the spiritual world. The problem is that we have allowed those senses to atrophy from lack of use. The good news is they can be restarted as we obey the Holy Spirit and just begin to practice them again. This is what he wrote in the book. A spiritual kingdom lies all about us, enclosing us, embracing us, all together within reach of our inner selves, waiting for us to recognize it. God himself is here waiting our response to his presence. The eternal world will come alive to us the moment we begin to reckon upon its reality. Sunrise. A songbird at an unlikely time or place. An unexpected but definitely needed word of encouragement. Food on the table. Again, a reconciled relationship. The strength that is needed to accomplish the task when you didn't think the strength was going to be there. A wife's furtive glance, a husband's warm embrace, a friend's faithful presence. Postcards, emojis, text messages, reminders of the grace that comes from the one who loves us more than we can know. So for me, what began as an intellectual knowledge about Jesus grew into a relational knowledge of Jesus and then deepened into an intimacy with the Lord through his Holy Spirit. I've not reached any goals yet. I haven't made any kind of accomplishments. I still don't know my groom as well as I'd like to. But when I look back over the last 40 years, I can say that I see that I am growing in my knowledge about him. 
and I'm growing in my knowledge of him. And I'm not doing anything special. I'm just a guy who's hanging out waiting for his Savior to return, and I'm doing some choosing to how I'm going to wait in that interval. And I'm doing it with the attitude of a bride who's awaiting her husband. So, so we move from a commitment level, wow, look what you've done for me, I want to give back to you. And as we move through that, it deepens into a more interesting, beautiful feeling and affection of love one for another. Let's go back to the process now. There's the betrothal, which is followed by the interval. And during the interval phase, the bride prepares herself for her groom. The groom is on a construction project. The bride is preparing herself to become his wife. What do I need to learn? How do I find faithfulness in this? How do I do that? And she's also learning to be expectant because the husband, the groom, can come back at any moment. And when he does, she needs to be absolutely ready. She needs to cut all those ties, seal things up, pack her bag, and be ready to go when he comes. Betrothal. Preparing in the interval, and then the long-awaited arrival as the groom, accompanied by all of his friends, comes with trumpet shouts and blasts and a marvelous celebration. At that moment, the bride is then given a special bridal bath, and when she comes out of there washed and clean, she's given beautiful clothes and ornaments and jewelry, and then she accompanies her groom all the way back to the groom's house, to the father's house, where they engage in a fantastic feast, a fantastic marriage feast as a way to recognize that they're about to enter into the fullness of the marital union that God had promised. With all this in mind, let's return to the familiar words of Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. There's that bridal bath there. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. I want to look again at verses 25 through 27. Listen to what this says. Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Why? To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. The reason Jesus loved and gave was that he might present us to himself as his bride, a church without blemish or defect, holy and clean in his sight. He does the work. The choice is not yours. The end result is not yours. Yeah, we work in the interval to accomplish and to grow and to become more like Christ and all that great stuff, but, but the end result is not ours. He is the one who's going to do it. He carries the full weight of bringing us into union with him and union with one another, as it was in the Garden of Eden. We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. He is the one who's paid a great price and has given us many gifts to bring us back into his family. As his betrothed, you and I are invited to rest, to rest in his, in his love, to rest in his embrace, to rest in his acceptance, knowing that he is a God who's going to finish the work that he began and will bring us into fullness in Jesus Christ one day. Well, I don't know where you are in this wedding process, 
It's possible that you're not yet betrothed. It's possible that you have not yet received the price that the Father and the Son are willing to pay to take you out of your current situation and bring you into his family to receive the blessings of that. If that is your case, why will you not receive the cup? What's holding you back? Because he does love you very much. And if you are betrothed to Jesus, how are you spending that interval period? Are you, are you taking time to grow in your knowledge about him? Are you embracing the Holy Spirit that you can grow in your knowledge of him? Are you deepening in your intimacy with him? Are you working to take the intellectual truths that you agree with to have them translate into your heart so that your love for him will be deepened and your expectation of his arrival will be heightened? Is it possible that maybe there's some entanglements with this world still? You need to cut those ties, pack your bag, and get ready to live in a more expectant way. It's possible. The Bible begins with a wedding in the Garden of Eden, and it concludes with a wedding in Revelation 21, as God again dwells with his people. That's what he wants. The first wedding in, in the Garden of Eden was broken. The second wedding is a restoration, a repair, and it will last for eternity. And that second wedding begins with a betrothal, right? That's how the process goes. And that betrothal actually took place at the Last Supper when Jesus offered himself as the, as the payment and offered the cup as the new covenant. So what I'd like to do this morning is, is close with a, a time of celebrating communion meal. And what I want to do is, instead of giving you all these practical things out there, I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit speak to you on this today because everyone's in a different place. And as you're listening during our, our time of communion today, as you're listening to the Holy Spirit, realize that his voice might be firm sometimes, but it's always going to be loving, and it's always going to be gracious. If you are hearing something that's angry at you, or, you know, that's not the Lord talking to you. Listen for the loving groom to come to you today. So what I want to do is uh, I'm going to amplify a little bit on the words that the Apostle Paul gave us. That on the night in which he's betrayed, our Savior took the bread. Having given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. This is the thing I am giving to buy you out of your current situation and to bring you into my family. This sacrifice opens the way for you to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and opens the way for you to, be, to, to inherit all that the Father offers. Not only so, but I'm also going to give you the enduring gift of my spirit as a guarantee that everything I say to you is going to happen. It will come to pass. Because I love you deeply, and I desire deeply to be with you. That is why I so eagerly and joyfully give you this payment and these gifts. Will you accept it, he would say? And after they had supped, our Savior took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant made in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you enter this covenant by drinking the cup today? Let's spend time together and listen to the Spirit.